Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. We started a series last week called Eight Hills. Uh, it's a series about our values here at Life Church, the things that we believe. When I say here at Life Church, I'm not talking about us as an organization, I'm talking about us as a, com- a community, the body of Life Church, us. And uh, things that we, that we basically said, this is what we're staking our lives on, this is the things that we're gonna chase after as a community, this is how we're gonna make an impact in our city, in Johnson County, and around the world by adhering to these values. Last week, we kicked it off with, the fir- with our first value, biblical truth. And uh, it's just basically this idea that we want to be a community that's intentional, and that's an important word, intentional about, uh, about organizing our life around the teachings of Jesus, about or- ordering our life, about organizing our life around God's word, his truth. We live in a very shaky world. I don't know, things have changed. Even in my lifetime, and I don't consider myself super old, some of you might debate that, but I don't consider myself super old. And in my lifetime, I have seen a tremendous amount of change. I can speak to things like sociological changes in our, in our time. I could talk about political change. Those things are kind of polarized. I won't talk about that right now, but let's just think about technology, for example. I remember when I was a kid and my mom would say, hey, Rich, uh, call your aunt and invite her over for lunch. And I would walk to our kitchen, to a wall, where there was a box on the wall called a phone. And it had a little receiver hanging with a little, you know, you know curly kind of cord that attached to it. And it had this little round thing, you know, that had numbers, zero through one, you know. And you had to, and you know, I don't know what it was in Panama, why all the phone numbers started with zero, it's like, it's like the last number, you know? You know, that's how, that's how it was. Fortunately, it was only six numbers in Panama. I remember that, having those phones. So I'd call my mom. It'd take about 10 minutes to call my aunt, I mean, call my aunt and say, hey, come, because it, it just took so long to dial, you know? So I was so excited when we got the new phone a few years later with push buttons. Like, you don't have to dial anymore. You can just push the button, right? One, two, three, whatever, you push the button. And uh, I still had a fo- receiver attached with a cord, you know, and you'd kind of talk on the phone that way, always in the kitchen. And then the technology improved. Suddenly, the receiver did not have a cord anymore. And it had a little antenna that you would raise it up. And then it got even fancier than that. Then the receiver would have buttons on it that you can actually dial the number. And then it went downhill from there because then voicemail started, you know, and then, then you had to have, then, then you had messages on your phone that you had to listen to. It's like, oh, I don't really want to come and help you move today, but you left me a voicemail and now I know that you left, that you need help moving and I really don't want to help you move, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's just kind of why it went downhill. And now we have cell phones. I mean, so things have really, really changed in our time, and that's really the world that characterizes the world that we live in. We live in a world that is changing constantly. It's shifting constantly. Values are shifting constantly. And so when we say from this platform and from in this church, we say, organize your life around the teachings of Jesus, organize your life around God's word, is that's the anchor of your life. That does not shift. That is solid. 
Everything around you might shift, but at least you are anchored into something that is solid. And yes, you know, we, we, talk, you know, we use the analogy, it's like building a house. Yeah, the wind's gonna blow, it might knock a few shingles off, it might break a few windows, but your house will stand because it's on something that is rock solid, God's word. And so that's our first value. But then our second value, when we talk about biblical truth, you need to understand that biblical truth is really just one part of what I see as a two-part proposition. Biblical truth combined with God's love is what makes a life-giving church. One without the other leads to extremes. If it's all about biblical truth and it's not understood in the context of God's love, then it it kind of gravitates towards religion and legalism. And we, I've been a part of that. I've been a part of churches where I came into this thing having experienced the love of Christ but then I, the gravitational pull pulled me towards religion and legalism. And before long, it's all about this little group of people that we all believe the same thing and we all adhere to the same truth and we're all gonna stand on this and all those people over there, they need to get their act together. So if it's only about biblical truth and that's, but then if it's only about you know, God's love and biblical truth really is just secondary, well then kind of leads towards relative truth and relativism and there's nothing really concrete at all to stand on. And so it's both of them. It's both of them together. It's really what makes this complete and worth dying for. This is our value. The love of God. The love of God demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. And when we say demonstrated, it's just kind of shorthand for saying what Jesus did for you and I. That God sent his son to die on a cross before we ever knew him, while we were yet sinners, while we were lost, while we were doing our own thing, while some of us in this room were shaking our fist at God, God sent his son to die on a cross through the person of Jesus Christ. That act radically transforms all aspects of a person's life. It's our second value. You hear us talk a lot about God's love around here. And when we talk about God's love, we're not talking about like mushy feelings. I mean, that might come with it, but it's not just, it's about action. We don't just talk about love, we do it. Jesus talks about this in John 13. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Obviously, there's something that's observable. There's something that is seen, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, people outside of the faith, people outside of these four walls, look in your direction and they see something. They experience something. And what are they experiencing? They're experiencing the love of God being manifest through your life. I spent a large part of my life on mission as a missionary whether we were missionaries in Bangladesh or whether we were planning a church in Leesville, Louisiana or came here 18 years ago to start Life Church. Too often when we talk about mission, it's easy to kind of get caught up in things like numbers and buildings and statistics, you know, and I could talk to, you know, I, I'm, I do that all the time. I talk about those things all the time. And we kind of miss the heart of mission, which is really the stories of people. 
Like, I could talk to you about my church plant in Leesville, Louisiana, back in 1986. I could talk about going there, and I could talk about the demographics. It was Puerto Rican church primarily. I could talk about, uh, you know, our strategy to, to, to grow the church. I could talk about our leadership structure, but all that stuff would be boring. I'd rather talk to you about Aida Tello in our church in Leesville, Louisiana. A woman that walked in at the very beginning of planting this church, walked in through the back and sat in the very back. She's a drug, drug addict, IV drug user. Walked in and, and Jesus radically changed her life. I remember the day she walked up to an altar and knelt down and just wept and wept and wept. She walked to that altar, addicted to heroin, got up, set free by the power of God, went home, flushed all the drugs down the toilet, and never did it again. Became an evangelist for Jesus. I mean, she, she wasn't, it's okay, it's okay, we'll, she, she wasn't trying. She was just, she had just collided with the love of Christ in her life and she was just gonna talk about him. And there was no place where she would not talk about him. I think that that's really what we see here in the Gospels is really a, a collection of stories of people who have collided with Jesus. They've experienced the love of God and their lives have been transformed. In fact, I think if you asked Jesus, you know, like if we could sit down across the table with Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, how was your missions trip down to earth? Because really, that's what it was. That's why we talk about missions all the time, because that's what Jesus did. He came on a mission to this earth for you and me. And we say, hey, Jesus, how was your missions trip here on earth? I, I guarantee you, he wouldn't say, well, let me tell you about the doctrines I want you guys to know. Let me tell you about the theology that you need to understand. Now, I think Jesus would sit across the table and say something like, let me tell you about Matthew. His name is Levi, but his Greek name is Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. And Matthew felt worthless. Matthew thought that his life was gone, that there's no way that God could use him. That he, his name, Levi, you know, and all that, you know, it's a Jewish name. He didn't really, he was not very proud of that anymore because there was no chance, there was no chance for him to actually have, to be used by God, and yet he became one of my followers. He became a disciple of mine. Or this woman, man, this, there was this day when I, when I was invited to this Pharisee's house, and we were having lunch, and we're sitting there just kind of gabbing and talking, and, you know, I'm kind of, you know, setting these guys straight on their, on their doctrines and their viewpoints, and suddenly this woman walks in. She was a known prostitute. And she walks into this room, and man, could you imagine? She must have been terrified walking into that room with all of these religious leaders. And she sees me, and I think this woman actually knew more about the love of God than, than any of these religious leaders did, but she sees me and just begins to weep. And she kneels at my feet, and she just begins to cry and weep, and she sees that my feet have not been washed by these religious leaders, and they should have, but they didn't. And so she sees my feet that are dirty, and so she starts weeping on my feet, and with her hair starts wiping my feet clean. Man, the, the look on their faces. There was a time I was, I was, there was a time I was like in this house, and I was preaching, and suddenly the roof started caving in. 
And I look up and there's this guy on a mat being lowered by his buddies. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, Jesus. They're smiling and all. Hey, Jesus, he's paralyzed. Will you heal him? Will you do something for him? And that day I healed this man. I think if you ask Jesus about his time here on earth, that's what he would talk about. He'd tell the stories of people whose lives have been transformed. I call that a beautiful collision. Where broken lives clash, crash against the love of God. I know beautiful and collision, those words seem incongruent. They don't really go together. Beautiful, collision, like there's nothing really beautiful about a wreck. And yet that's really the stories that we see here in in Scripture over and over and over again. People who were a wreck and they meet Jesus for the very first time in their lives are completely changed. And my prayer this week, as I've been praying this week, I've been praying that there's going to be some of you in this room that you're going to collide with the love of Christ today. God is wanting to reach your heart. And yeah, you're here, and you're kind of going through the motions, like I'm in church, I need to act the part. I need to be the, you know, I need to look like I've got my act together. But you need to encounter his love. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this book here is not just a set of propositional statements that you need to follow. This book here is filled with stories of lives that were completely impacted and transformed because they encountered the love of Christ. <clears throat> what I want to do today is I want to talk about a specific story in the Gospels, the uh, story of Nicodemus. And what I want to do is I want to put intention because sometimes when we talk about God's love, it's, 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 sometimes at, at times it's, it's difficult to like make it concrete, right? Because you think of love as an emotion, as a feeling, and you want to talk about love, and then we would try to make it concrete by, you know, giving examples, and, and those examples are, relate to some people, but they don't relate to other people and that kind of stuff. And so it's kind of challenging sometimes to talk about God's love in a concrete way. And so one of the ways that we can actually try to understand God's love is actually by contrasting it. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to put in tension religion versus the love of God. And understand so that when we, so that you can see this is what religion looks like, Therefore, this is what God's love is actually like. And we're going to see that really through the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this uh, religious leader. He's found in John chapter 3. We're going to be there. He's this religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been like the Supreme Court or kind of like a combination of the Supreme Court and the House of Representatives for us. They, they were like the ruling body. They made decisions. They, 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 uh, they, you know, they legislated and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> They were made up of 72 men, and they were kind of divided into two camps. You had the Sadducees, and then you had the Pharisees in this Sanhedrin, okay? So there's two different categories, kind of like Democrats and Republicans, basically. And so Pharisees and Sadducees, and, they, and these guys, they really didn't get along. They, they didn't really agree on almost anything at all. Like, you know, Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. You could just talk about those kinds. There's a whole list of things they did not agree on. But one thing that they did agree on was that Jesus was a threat and he needed to be eliminated. Jesus had become very popular among the people. 
And that meant that their influence was now waning. Like, you, you can imagine, you know, they, you go to the synagogue, you start teaching, you start teaching. One of the guys raises his hand, hey, by the way, Jesus said, you said, you just said this, but Jesus said this. What, what about that? And that was bothering them. And they wanted to get rid of Jesus, right? And so you can agree on that. That's what they agreed on. And so you have Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees, again, if you were a Sadducee, you were born into that position. Um, there was a lot of other requirements, but, but you could not be a Sadducee unless it was in your bloodline. A Pharisee, on the other hand, was one who really worked hard at becoming a Pharisee, studied a lot, earned degrees so that they could become a Pharisee. And so today we're going to look at Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and part of the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 3, you're starting with verse 1. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, <clears throat> he came to speak to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, this Pharisee seems like is kind of humble. This Pharisee seems like is kind of embracing of Jesus. Like, he, you know, his colleagues want to take him out, want to take Jesus out. But this, this guy's like, you know, I see that God must be with you, right? But then I want you to notice, when is it that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus? After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Why at dark? Why at night? Maybe, maybe Nicodemus was thinking, you know, I want to avoid any kind of awkward conversations with my colleagues, so I'll just have this secret meetup with Jesus. I'll just kind of meet him secretly. That way, that way, you know, there's, I don't lose anything. You know, I can avoid a collision altogether. Like I can meet with Jesus and get to know more about Jesus without it affecting my income. I can meet with Jesus and, and maybe get to know a little bit more about the miraculous things that he does and his relationship with the Father without it really affecting my job. Maybe this is what Nicodemus is thinking. We don't really exactly know what he's thinking. We know that he's... He, he's doing this in hiding. I think oftentimes, this is a little side note, I'm not really talking about it. I think oftentimes that's how we want to live our life. We want Jesus. We want everything that Jesus offers, but we really don't want it to affect any other area of our life. And you're gonna, you'll see real quickly that Jesus says, there's, no, there's, not, there's only one way. You can't do it this way. And so Jesus doesn't mince words at all. He basically answers Nicodemus' question before he even asks the question. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like an emphatic statement. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I want you to think about how this fell on Nicodemus' ears. He's a man who has spent his entire life studying, working hard for the right degree. He's meticulously followed the letter of the law so that his religious resume is impeccable. Like he's done all the right things. He's worked extremely hard. He attends church. He tithes faithfully. He even goes a little bit above and beyond, gives the kingdom builders. He serves in children's ministry and comes to men's breakfast. And he does all of these things so that he can get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, hey, that's great, Nicodemus, but that's not enough. You must, you must, you must be born again. None of that's going to get you into heaven. 
And so this is what I want you to catch here in this very brief conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is that at the intersection of religion and Jesus, at the intersection of religion and Jesus where achieve and receive collide. At, at the intersection of religion and Jesus where religion, we're talking about contrasting religion and Jesus, religion and the love of God, is where achieve and receive collide. You see, religion tells you you need to achieve. Religion tells you that you need to work hard. Religion tells you that, 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 that the only way that God's gonna accept you is if you do everything the right way and work hard, work hard, work hard, and just maybe at the end of that route, just maybe, God will take you in. That's what religion does. But Jesus comes along and says, nope. It's not about achieving. It's about receiving. And this is hard for Nicodemus to hear because he has spent his entire life achieving. He has stuffed his pockets with religious currency. And he meets Jesus and he says, how about this, Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, nah, we don't take that money here. That doesn't work here. That's why the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Why? Because it's just not good enough. It's not what's going to get you to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, this may be hard for some of you to hear because you've spent your entire life as well trying to achieve, trying to be good enough, trying to do all the right things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to do the right thing. I'm not saying go out there and do the bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But it's easy to spend our lives just trying, and then thinking that somehow or another that gives us credit with God. That somehow or another we are better than because we've done all the right things. That's not really what makes you good with God. Others of you, you're kind of relieved a little bit because, well, your pockets are empty. <laughs> like you've not been trying to achieve. You've been basically going, running in the opposite direction. Like you've been like, you try to do a few good things. Like you go to church once in a while just to like feel good. And, and get a little bit of credit. But then you leave and spend all of that credit, and it's gone. And so you come to Jesus, and there's nothing to offer at all. This should all, I mean, to be honest with you, this, this should all sound like freedom for us. Whether you're spending your life trying to achieve this truth that it's not about, it's not about achieving, it's about receiving, should feel like freedom to you and I. Freedom. And this is really what the gospel is all about. It's about freedom. It's not about, you know, you trying to achieve and trying to get more and become somehow another closer to God. It's not about what you have done. It's about what you, what's been done for you. I think the hardest truth for us to understand is that somehow or another you get to experience the love of God without deserving it. I know this, I, I, I know it because I've done it. Some of you sitting out there, wait, wait, no, 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 no. They have to do something. Like, you just can't be that free. I mean, it's free, but it's not that free. That's freedom for me. You get to experience the love of God without deserving it. And this is the beautiful collision that I'm talking about. Now, I don't have time to get into the rest of the conversation with Nicodemus. But basically, Jesus, Jesus gives him a theology lesson, you know, and, and kind of shuts him, shuts him up a little bit <clears throat> and teaches him a few things. 
and then gives the rationale, the reason why you and I get to experience the love of God without deserving it. Very famous passage, passage we quote all the time. I don't know that we always believe it fully, but we quote it all the time. We see it at football games, held up with signs and all that. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the initiation, you sitting here in this room, did not start because you did something. You here experiencing, you know, the, the, the warmness of being in worship and worshiping God and singing songs and, and community that you feel and, and the embrace that you might get while you're here, all that did not start with you. It started with God's love. For God so loved the world that what did he do? What did he, do? he gave. He gave to you. He gave to me way before I was ever able, I was even conscious of the fact that God loved me. While I was shaking my fist at God, he gave to me. While I was running in the opposite direction, while I was in sin, fornicating and everything else, he gave for me. That's where it started. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life or have eternal life. Father has loved you so much and no matter where you've been or what you've done, he's made a way for you to experience the kingdom of God. That's why around here we say, come just as you are, but don't stay that way. We mean that. We mean that. There's not a measuring stick at the front door saying, wait, wait, oh, you don't measure up. Sorry, you can't come in. Because that's not, that's not God. That's not what God does. No. This affirms the belief that we have in the love of God that he takes you just as you are, broke and nothing to offer. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come just as you are. And you know what he does when you come and you collide with the love of Christ? He takes that and he turns around and he makes it something beautiful. In fact, as I'm looking, see, you, you're all looking in my direction. I'm sorry, you're having to do that. But as I'm looking out there, what I see is these amazing stories of these beautiful collisions where you were lost, where you were dying in your sin, where you had nothing to offer to God and you met the love of Jesus Christ and he transformed you. And now you sit there with a smile and you sit there with hope and you sit there with peace. This is what he does for you and I. There's a pastor in Carrollton, Texas that I've come to love and appreciate. I don't really, I've never met him or anything like that, but I've kind of followed him through the years. And I think the the reason I feel connected to him is because I think our stories are kind of similar. He's a pastor. I'm a pastor. And he's, he, he has a, an, another ministry now. But um, there's, there's something, I, I, honestly, it feels gross to even talk about it. Of the so many times that I've stood here and I've preached. And the thought at the end of my sermon is, I hope they like what I said. I, I hope I did I did good enough. And I walk around feeling like, you know, will somebody come and say, hey, good job, Rich? No, no I'm not, I, don't, I don't want you to do that, by the way, okay? Because what I was feeling is that somehow or another for me to be worth anything, for me to have access to God, for God to be pleased with me at all is if I do a good job. Let's, 
Watch Pete's story. It's exhausting having to succeed. And uh, what I didn't realize is, uh, is that was my focus for so long and that was my drive for so long that I, I had just worn myself out. When I was a little guy and people asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? At first, it was a fireman, um, and then it was a policeman. You can go ahead and restart it, guys. Kind of different. Every time someone asks me, what... can we? Nope, not gonna work. All right. Anyways, his story is like my story, and it's this story of, of, uh, you know what. God doesn't want you to come to him with all your accolades and achievements. What he wants is for you to come to him open-handed. Lord, I'm just here to receive from you. And it's not just Pete's story. It's my story. It's many of your stories as well. Where we came to him broken with nothing to offer. Our lives were a disaster, but we collided with the love of Christ, and our lives were transformed. Amen. And I know that some of you understand that because that's what you've experienced. I'm going to ask us to stand. We're going to conclude our service here this morning. <clears throat> this is why we unapologetically believe that if you come to Jesus just as you are, in fact, I, I have this fundamental belief that a lot of people don't come to Christ because they're trying really hard to fix themselves first. A young man I actually met in the lobby earlier that was invited to church and only made it as far as the lobby would not come into the auditorium. And um, I get it. There's this idea that somehow or another you know, for God to care, for God to love me, for God to do anything with my life, I've got to be good enough. <clears throat> That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is simply this. Open your hands and receive. Somebody once asked me, and I, that couple weeks ago, and I asked, you know, Pastor, I just really appreciate how you lead, whatever, they're saying those kind of things. And the first thought that came to my mind is, you know, you know, you know why I might lead this way and why... I, um, I'm kind of, I get a little centered and I'm not, I don't start thinking too much of myself. It's because <clears throat> I remember 40 years ago where I came from. I remember that day I walked into that church, 19 years old, lost, drug addicted kid that had never really been to church. And I was felt hopeless. I felt Abandoned by my father, my, my, literally my, my earthly father. I felt like I was worthless. Like I wasn't loved. And then I collided with the love of Christ. And it changed my life. For some of you in this room, that's what you need. For some of you in this room, you've been on this journey for a while. You met Jesus. 
you've matured, you've grown, you know the Bible. Maybe you forgot about your first love. Maybe you forgot that that you really, you know, all your Bible study and all that stuff is great. Do it. Don't stop doing it. But that's not what gets you in. That's not what makes you righteous. Maybe what needs to happen is we need to recenter ourselves to what Jesus has done in our lives. For others of you in this room, you came in here and you've never given your life to Christ. You've never surrendered your heart to him. And you have a lot of questions and you're walking through your mind thinking, you know, I don't know, maybe I should try, work a little harder before I make this big step. But this is all that Jesus wants. He wants you to come open-handed with him. Lord, I don't have anything to give. Same way when I was 19 years old, I just can't, I don't have anything to give. I wish, I wish I could offer something up. I wish I could do something. I have nothing to give except here's my life. Here's my heart there's some of you in this room that need to make that decision today. Amen. So we're going to have a last song of worship. We have prayer teams here in the left and right. I'm going to pray for us and um, I'm going to invite you. And while we're in worship, you can step out. You can go meet our prayer team. In fact, I encourage you to do it then. Step out and meet up with our prayer teams. If you're here today and you want to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you want to make a decision to basically say, I don't know what this is all about. I'm not exactly sure, exactly sure what it means to follow Christ. I just know that my life's a mess and I need Jesus in my life. And you're going to make that decision. Here's the second step I'm going to ask you to do. Will you let us know? There's a card in front of you. All you have to do is check on that card. Say, today I gave my life to Jesus. Today I, you know, I want to know more about Jesus and we'll be able to follow up with you. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to thank you for who you are. I thank you, Father, that you've given us your word. And your word is like a solid anchor for our lives. It doesn't shift. It doesn't move. It doesn't change over time. It is is your word. And it's solid. It's something we can hang on to. And I also thank you, Father, that you have given us and shown us and demonstrated your love to us that us following you is not just simply doing all of these things, but it's really, it really is about a relationship with you, Jesus, where we come to you empty-handed, but we come to you receiving what you have for us, knowing that as we encounter your love, our lives will be changed, our lives will be transformed. So right now, Father, will you do that in lives here? Father, for those individuals in this room that are, for the very first time, are making a decision to follow you, God, will you give them the courage to step out and say, I need, I need Jesus in my life. For those of us that have been in this for, for some time and maybe we have forgotten our first love, Jesus, will you remind us of that today? We recommit ourselves to come to you open-handed, willing to receive what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.